0: Well, I just need to um, begin by saying how incredibly grateful I am to be here, how grateful I am for all souls for hosting, how grateful I am to Mockingbird. Um, This is a ministry that has impacted my life tremendously over the past few years. It's been the steady influx of Episcopal priests into the Diocese of Texas tied um, to the Mockingbird Ministry, all of whom have been such a blessing to me personally, because as I've gotten to know them, that one note of grace that Mockingbird sings over and over and over again uh, has found its way into my heart through those relationships. And so as I got to know them, I started reading the blog, and then some of the authors that I found quoted on that blog, people like Paul Zall and Robert Capon, and of course, the Mockingbird publications themselves, which are excellent, and these books and this ministry has left a mark on my soul in such a way um, that I feel lighter, I feel hopeful, I feel more empowered, I feel more refreshed, uh, all at the same time. Um, Dave mentioned that my wife, Emily, is also a Mockingbird contributor, and so it's really fun to name her as one of my teachers. Um, So I could go on, but the point is that somewhere along the line, I drank the Mockingbird Kool-Aid Um, The ingredients of which are one part grace, no part anything else. And in drinking deeply, I have been so refreshed. And my hope for you who have taken the time to come to this conference is that you two will leave here lighter, more joyful, and also more refreshed. And essentially for the content of my two talks, which really are going to build on each other, I'm going to be drawing heavily from Falling into Grace, which, as Dave said, is a book that I wrote. It was released last April. Um, Because it's not an exaggeration to say that had I never been exposed to Mockingbird, I never would have published this book. And so I feel really privileged to have two slots. And in this first one, I want to say a word or two about why I wrote the book and to talk about grace, to talk about human weakness, and to talk about what it means to see our spiritual life as a journey of descent. And I'll say more about that in a bit. And of course, this evening, having laid that foundation, we can build on it and explore things like suffering and healing and purpose and how a grace-centered map of our lives might offer a more hopeful perspective on these topics that are so close to the human heart. Uh, And before I get going, I just want to say a word or two about how I hope you'll experience these talks. I hope you experience what I say as something I deeply believe and it's something, um, something that's changed the way that I see myself, the way I see God, uh, the way I see other people in a really wonderful way. I want to spark your imagination, your curiosity, and hopefully to awaken strong feelings of uh, compassion and appreciation both for yourself and for other people. And I say all that because I'm, finding to, I'm coming to find as I speak on this book um, that the spiritual map I sometimes offer Uh, is in a little tension uh, with the mental model of the Christian faith at times um, of those to whom I speak. And so my goal in these talks is not so much to persuade as it is to tell you what I believe about grace and to invite you to try it on and to wonder uh, what difference it could make in your life if grace were truly free and abundant and always present in our lives. And so that's kind of what I want to do, and I'm really grateful for you for being here. Um, So the reason I wrote this book was because I wanted to offer people a grace-infused map of the Christian spiritual life that I believe people are desperate for, a map that rings true to people's lived experience of what it means to be a fragile human being in a broken and sometimes really harsh world, that feeling we get, we all know it, whenever we're overpowered by the grind that is life. But also a map that's consistent not only with Jesus' teachings, but with the way our Lord lived his life. Because the truth is, and I imagine this is true for you if you've taken the time to come to a conference like this, I genuinely long um, for people to experience something of God's boundless love in their life. And I I want that inner experience of God's love to flow out into the world in such a way that our presence makes a positive love-spreading difference in our families, in our communities, in our world. And I do believe that as stewards of the Christian gospel, it is the church's job to offer such a map of what this journey might look like. And so whether we're a stay-at-home parent and we're knee-deep in diapers and soccer practice or whether we're preaching in the church week after week, or maybe we're retired or we find ourselves in a leadership position at work, whatever our station in life happens to be, if we're conscious of that desire to experience God's amazing, graceful love and to be a conduit through which that same love flows out of us and to other people, the question then becomes... Well, what does that look like? How does that happen? Is there not seven easy steps, not five spiritual laws, not a book of spiritual disciplines, but is there like a map, a a picture of the soul's inner landscape that can help us understand what the grace of God looks like in a human life? Um, Now, I know other preachers will never do this, but sometimes whenever it's a busy week and Friday rolls around and I don't have a sermon, Uh, What I do is I look back and I see what I preached on three, maybe six years ago, um, hoping to recycle. And uh, after giving that sermon a good read, God gets so depressed. (laughs) And I think to myself, I really should have been fired for preaching that sermon. (laughs) Now, obviously, I am kind of joking a little bit, but whenever I do look back and I get that inner feeling, nine times out of ten, it's not because my sermon was bad, it's not because it was necessarily wrong, but it's because often I fail to honor the truth that as human beings, we have some real limitations. And the world we live in, to quote the website promoting this conference, this world can leave us feeling inescapably breathless. And so what I used to offer as a preacher was motivation, inspiration, a direction to travel, maybe a few tools for the the journey. And uh, I quickly learned two things. First, I learned that most people came to church, myself included, preacher included, um, that when they came, they did not just have a full plate. No, they usually showed up with like five or six plates. Uh, All of which were overflowing and that for the most part, they felt guilty and exhausted and frankly scared that they couldn't do the impossible and keep all those plates spinning. And the impact of my motivational speech that I called a sermon was not to make their load lighter, even though Jesus said my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No, the emotional impact of my sermon was to give them another plate And to remind them of how important this particular plate was. Because it was the God plate. And that their call as a Christian was to be an example for the world, which means that they keep this plate spinning. God expects them. Let the other ones drop, but God expects you to keep this plate spinning. Now, I never actually said those words, thank God. But the emotional imprint my sermons often left in the hearts and minds and imaginations of real hurting human beings was sometimes to that effect. And not only is that disheartening to be told that God expects you to keep this plate spinning, but in the long run, I learned it's incredibly disempowering. And so a lesson I learned early on as a preacher was this, that spiritual motivation often demotivates. It may inspire or stir our emotions in the short run, but in the long run, trying to improve ourselves spiritually or worse, working really hard to improve someone else in our life, not that we've ever done that, but trying to improve ourselves or someone else, this actually exasperates fear and exhaustion and contempt. Because when told to keep that plate spinning, to be that shining example to the world, one of two things uh, will always happen, assuming we don't just walk away and do the opposite. But assuming we try to keep that plate spinning, one of two things happens. Either we fail and we drop that plate and we feel ashamed. Or worse, and this is the real danger, we, uh, we convince ourselves we've succeeded Uh, And that just leads to all kinds of spiritual mess. But again, the irony is that our effort at progression often leads to regression. Because whether we're celebrating our imagined spiritual success or lamenting what spiritual failures we imagine ourselves to be, in both cases, the focus is on us and not on a crucified Lord who loves us so much that he died for our life. And so I had to learn that as a preacher. But the second thing I'm coming to believe is this. If motivation and inspiration and spiritual tools, if this is all we have on our spiritual map, then a time will inevitably come when we feel absolutely lost. Uh, Maybe it's a tragedy that befalls us or someone we love, or maybe it's an addiction we can't shake. Maybe it's a massive failure or a change in life that we can't bounce back from, or maybe we just wake up one day and we realize that no matter how hard we try, our spiritual toolkit isn't enough to get us to that place where we assume we'd always end up. And so as I wrote this book, I was hyper aware that the language I was using when describing the spiritual life, it was all language of ascent, about going up, right? We talk about growing up, spiritually, or waking up, or of our need to increase our faith. You know, St. Benedict, he even talked about climbing the ladder of humility, um, which is just great, right? That means that you can kind of climb the corporate ladder Monday through Friday and then come to church on Sunday and climb the ladder of humility. It's a great arrangement, because there's just something about the American psyche that loves the idea that all we need is motivation and a little clarity about the rules of the game because we're the ones in control and we're the ones who get to climb. It's all very flattering if you think about it. So the reason I wrote this book um, was to remind the church, but really to remind myself that the Christian gospel is not about our climb. It's about God's descent, about his descent into our world, and into our failure and into the heartbreak of human history. It's about God's descent into our mistakes and our pain and our suffering and to the fabulous, beautiful uniqueness of our individual life. And as Christians, we have a word for that descent. We call it grace. And so that's why I wrote the book, to offer Weary travelers, a map of the spiritual life that's more about falling than climbing, more about failure than achievement, more about relinquishment and surrender than control, more about healing than holiness, and more about receptivity than action. And so, here's a question that being said, I want us to consider this morning to do some of that foundation work. Is it possible? Is it possible? that whenever we make a heavy, heavy investment and in what we perceive as our own spiritual ascent, in other words, if we take for granted that there is in fact a ladder that God wants us to climb and that the higher rungs of that ladder are what good Christians do, you know, read the Bible, worship, join a church, vote in a particular way, we all have a different list, but if we assume that there is a ladder to be climbed, and we make a heavy investment in climbing that spiritual ladder, is it possible that we're actually strengthening the very thing that God's grace longs to shatter in our life? And that's the illusion that we are in control and that we need to save ourselves And that there are rules that we need to follow. You know, Jesus tells this great parable in the 18th chapter of Luke's gospel, which if you went to an Episcopal church last week, you would have heard read. um, Two men go up to the temple to pray. And and one of these men, uh, he is a Pharisee. And with respect to spiritual growth, this guy is so earnest. I mean, he follows the law to the T. And so he goes to the temple and he prays something along these lines. He says, "Um, God, I thank you that I am super awesome. I pray every single day, and I fast twice a week, and God, I give a tenth of my income to the poor. But God, I tell you what I'm really grateful for. I thank you so much, God, that I'm not like that guy. Right? And then meanwhile, the camera pans over to this tax collector. He just beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, of course, in telling this story, what Jesus invites us to consider for like the 48th time in this particular gospel— because it's on every single page, is that in God's eyes, the sinner, he's just fine. But the religious guy, the one who assumes that he can keep the law and that by doing so, his spiritual condition will necessarily improve, he's the one, Jesus says, that can't see the one thing needed, and that's a God who showers humanity with love, with mercy, with compassion, with salvation, with his own life, and again, the word we use to capture that one sided non exchange we call grace. So, an image I use to capture this one sided non exchange in the book, it's one of the times I really, I think I first understood grace. Uh, it's a story of Maximilian Kobe, who was a Polish priest who died at Auschwitz during the Holocaust. And As the story goes, in July of 1941, ten men in Kobe's barracks were chosen to starve to death. And one man in particular began to cry out in fear. I've got a wife. I have children. Please, I beg you, take someone else. And upon hearing his plea, Kobe just stepped forward and he raised his hand and he spoke the following words. I'll die for that man. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Kobe stepped in and freely substituted himself to save this man who went on to survive the internment camp. But I love this story because for me, it captures this one-sided non-exchange we call grace. And in fact, it reminds me of something that Paul Zoll says in Grace in Practice where he writes, you know, grace uses no sticks and no carrots, it just dies for our life. And I would suggest that the impact of experiencing this one-way love that is freely given at every moment of every day is to refresh and to lighten and to heal because it fills the heart with a deep knowledge of God's unconditional blessing. Because in knowing grace, we know God. And in knowing God, we know ourselves as God sees us. And that's justified by the blood of Christ and it's marked as Christ's own forever. From a grace-centered perspective, this is actually the deepest truth about our identity. That we are unconditionally loved and safe, um, not because we're good, but because God is. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And for me, the reason that message, not the spiritual motivation, but that message both encourages and empowers... And for me, this is the game changer. It's because that means that my brokenness and my weakness and my sin, those aspects of my story that I want to minimize and hide and grow out of, not only is my brokenness not an obstacle to grace, and hey, that alone would be good news. You're a sinner, but God can get around that. That, That's good news. But the gospel is even better news. Because the gospel reminds us that our brokenness and weakness and sin, not only are they not a problem, but they're actually the places in our life where grace is most likely to thrive, to enter in, and also to spill out. And for me, what makes the grind the grind, what makes it an engine that hurts us and scares us and depletes us, what makes the grind the grind It's not just the obligation and expectation. That's bad enough. But for me, what makes the grind so depleting are all the messages and the assumptions that fuel the never-ending wheel of expectation and obligation. The message that makes us always expect more from ourselves and expect more from other people. The message that is so subtle and sneaky and just seeps into our consciousness like a steady drip day after day after day. And that message for me that fuels the grind is this. To be worthy of love, we first have to do something that makes us worthy of love. To me, this is the message that fuels the grind. Be beautiful. Be smart. Be good, be successful, have perfect kids, have the perfect smile, make partner, have great teeth, be outgoing, uh, you know, hold it all together. The world's list goes on, but the wheel of expectation and obligation that ties our worth and our performance together, it never stops spinning. Because the world we live in doesn't just hand out unconditional blessings. I don't know if you noticed. But here's the thing. God does, the church does, and it's the most countercultural thing we do. Because the world's blessing is always tied to a standard we have to meet, and the moment we meet that standard, someone raises it. Um, and I don't know about you, but whenever I live my life according to the rules of the world's game, which frankly I can't help but doing most of the time because I'm addicted to it, but whenever I do, it leaves me feeling so anxious and heavy. Um, I just want to share one quote from a person who is steeped in our world's do something culture. Um, She writes I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre. And uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Um, For those of you who have not read Vogue magazine recently, that's Madonna. But to me, that's the grind. The never-ending treadmill of trying harder to keep up where the moment we double our speed, that treadmill we're on triples it. And for me, this quote captures not just the grind, but the difference between what the world says is true and what Jesus says is true. The world says you've got to prove yourself. Prove that you are not mediocre. And we can do that in a million different ways. Worldly success, relational success... Spiritual success, in other words, um, the world says we need to ascend above whatever flavor of mediocrity we most fear. But I would say that the gospel speaks a much better word than that. Um, That it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom just because, and that we are all uniquely special to God and justified by the blood of Christ. And so here's what I want you to imagine. A thought, just to try on. That the people in our world most likely to spread love, they're not people without flaws, without deficiencies, without weakness, but rather people who know the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus in the midst of their weakness and in the midst of other people's weakness. That the people most likely to spread love are not necessarily the ones most passionate about their rule of life. But who are self-compassionate whenever they fail to live into their rule of life. In other words, what I'll offer for consideration is this. Maybe God has no intention. No intention of partnering with us. To help us get rid of our weakness, to help us get rid of our brokenness, to help us get rid of our limitations. Because if we were to ascend above those things, we would at the same time be leaving behind that very spot where grace enters in and where grace flows out. The late Thomas Merton and Travis Monk, he puts it like this. He says, if we know how great... It's the love of Jesus for us. We will never be afraid to go to him And all of our poverty, all of our weakness, all of our spiritual wretchedness and infirmity. Indeed, whenever we understand the true nature of his love for us, we will prefer to come to him poor and helpless. We will never be ashamed of our distress. Distress is to our advantage. When we have nothing to seek but mercy, we can be glad of our helplessness when we really believe that his power is made perfect in our infirmity. And so what we have here, my friends, are two very different ways of thinking. Madonna and Merton. (laughs) Voice one and voice two. Weakness is bad and something we need to grow out of, and weakness is good, something to descend deeper into, because only in and through our weakness do we experience the love, mercy, and grace of Jesus Christ. And I have to say, I marvel that I still find this message shocking as a priest, but I do. I struggle with it, not in my head, but in the deep places of my heart, but You know, I mean, our shared weakness, this is the foundation of Christian community. Now, I've never worshipped here at All Souls before, but I do assume that never in the history of this church has anyone ever processed down the aisle to, we are the champions. (laughs) It's just a guess, right? And I assume, I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume during the piece, you know, you don't just like slap high fives and kind of talk about how awesome you are. I assume that because we don't gather on Sundays to celebrate our mutual awesomeness. Because what binds us together is grace. And the reason we gather every single Sunday is to confess our sins and to receive a piece of broken bread that reminds us that we're broken people and that it's our mutual brokenness and our reliance on God in the midst of that brokenness that alone, can point the world to the broken body of a broken Lord who died to declare that in him we are whole. That's the reason we gather. It's just what we do. And so with the time I have left for this first session, I just want to offer three quick thoughts and then tell a story. And that'll kind of be our foundation work for the second talk. The first thought I want to offer is this. The life of grace, whatever that is, Maybe it's more about descending than ascending, more about decrease than increase, more about receiving than giving. And maybe it's more about learning to accept what is than change what is. And that includes our weakness, our sin, our imperfection. Because what I believe to be true is that love enters our life through the doorway of weakness and sin and struggle and pain And that love always flows out that exact same door. And perhaps there is no greater tragedy in the church than whenever we try and plug the holes where grace flows in and where grace flows out. You know, so many of us want to make the world a better place. I totally get that because the world is tough and justice is a value. But what I'd have us consider is that justice is not primarily something we fight for, but something that flows out of us as we learn to fall deeper into grace. And what that means for me, point two, uh, is that the spiritual life, it's, it's not about taking control. It can not be. Because what grace always does is shatter the illusion that we are in control. Because what ultimately fuels the grind, the Grind that just grinds away at our self-worth and robs us of energy and joy. What fuels the grind is an erroneous belief that we are in control and that if we play the game well, we can manufacture a good outcome. But again, the moment we get one of those plates under control, we keep it spinning, the world's going to hand you two more, right? If you double your speed, the world will triple it. And so rather than giving us a strategy to win the game, I think grace gives us permission to stop playing. And it fosters self-compassion when, frankly, we can't stop playing the game because I think, again, we're addicted to it. Um, Or whenever we lose the game because, again, the game is rigged. Everyone loses. (laughs) Ultimately, no one wins. And so I think grace shatters the illusion of control And helps us experience empathy and compassion in the midst of that experience. And then three, um, I've never said this out loud before, so I don't know how it's going to be heard. I'm just going to go for it. We live in a world of expectation and obligation. And I think it's entirely natural just to project that nonsense onto God. I mean, it's just a default thing that we all do. But here's what I think grace means. And I say this because I think that spirituality is more about unlearning than it is about learning. If grace means anything, it's that God does not expect anything from you. I'm not saying grace is cheap. I'm saying it's absolutely free. And that it never runs out. Because God is love. And I do not believe that the opposite of love is hate. I do not believe that the opposite of love is unbelief. I believe the opposite of love is expectation. And hate, I think that's what bubbles up in our world when people, when the world, when God fail to meet whatever expectations we placed onto them and so whenever you hear the phrase "unconditional love," I want you to know that phrase is a redundancy, because if it's not unconditional, if it's not without expectation, it's not love, because love's desire is always to empty itself for the sake of the beloved. Yes, it may engender a response, but love is a one-sided non-exchange a Pouring out for the sake of the beloved. And that for me is precisely what the grace of God is. God's one way self emptying into our life in all seasons and circumstances. And you know sometimes I take that in. And it heals and refreshes and spills out. But at other times it falls on rocky ground. It falls on the thorns. And Jesus told a parable about that. And so whatever the God plate is for you. God does not expect you to keep that plate spinning. And so let me um, end by telling a little story. And I think this story and kind of what I've said thus far will kind of maybe set the tone for um, Falling into Grace Part 2. And uh, this story I share, I heard from Father Gregory Boyle. Um, He was the, the keynote speaker at a fundraiser in Houston, Texas. And... Uh, He works with gang members in Los Angeles, um, and he was speaking. And as part of the healing process, Father Boyle invites the gang members to share their stories. And on this particular occasion, Boyle shared a bit with us about Pablo's life. And growing up, Pablo always wore three T-shirts. And he did that because his mother beat him every single day. And two T-shirts were needed to soak in the blood that flowed from the wounds. Um, Pablo's mom wanted nothing to do with him, and so she dropped him off at an orphanage whenever he was nine years old, Um, just dropped him off. And because that's all he knew, Pablo, when he went to school, even though, like, the beatings had stopped, he just kept wearing three T-shirts. And every day, his classmates would laugh at him, and they'd ask him why he wore three T-shirts. And so Pablo... When telling others about his life, he always got choked up at this particular part of the story and he began to sob. And after collecting himself, Pablo gave this answer. He said, I wore three T-shirts because I never wanted to show people my wounds. I was ashamed of my wounds. And so I always tried to hide them. But now I see that to live into my purpose, I need to welcome my wounds How else will I ever be able to heal another person? And that very well may be the wisest thing I've ever heard in my life. And it comes not from a philosopher or from a member of the clergy, but just from someone trying to escape gang life who decided that he too could be a conduit of God's love in the world. And that's really ultimately what grace means to me that if we're going to be a conduit through which other people find healing, if we're going to find healing ourselves, God's grace invites us to welcome the very thing that we spend so much of our life running from and that, quite frankly, we're least likely to reveal when we come to church. And that's our wounds, our pain, our fears, our weakness, our sin, or what Jesus just called the cross. And so I guess I'd end this this first talk by saying, not only is it okay that we're not perfect, but if the one-way love of God we call grace has taught me anything, it's that our imperfection, that is the paper on which the spiritual map of our lives is drawn. It is that holy place where the grace of God enters in and where the grace of God flows out. Thank you. I'm deeply grateful for you for listening. Thank you so much.